So if you could turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, we'll continue our study in this wonderful and glorious epistle. Last time we were here, we kind of accidentally covered the entire chapter, which is a good thing sometimes to read larger chunks of the Bible and to try to understand what the author's main point Sometimes we get so caught up in the weeds, so caught up in the trees, as they say, that we miss the entire force. We end up preaching our own sermon, our own thoughts, and our own ideas instead of flowing with the argument of the text. And so it's a good thing as we covered the entire chapter, we saw the big idea. And the big idea, you can see, it's really the big idea of the entire book of Hebrews, namely the superiority of Christ over everything. You really even see that if you think about it at the Great Commission, when Jesus had just arisen from the grave, he went to his disciples right before he gave the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, in light of that truth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's really what Christianity is about. It's about the superiority of Christ, the second Adam, the greater son of David, who has conquered death who's conquered sin, who's conquered the devil, and now offers the salvation that he freely earned, or he earned and freely gives to us if we merely put our faith in him. And so that's what Hebrews 1 is all about. When I, hopefully after these two sermons, as you think about Hebrews 1, this will be the place that you'll go to when you want to magnify the person of Christ. The whole chapter is about who he is and how he is so much superior to angels. Let's begin in verse 1, and we'll read the entire chapter, and then we'll peek into chapter 2, going down to verse 5. So a little bit larger chunk, but hopefully you'll read along and feel the flow of the argument. Verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made by himself, he had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, and you have hated lawlessness. Therefore God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your your years will not fail." But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those 
who will inherit salvation. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and with wonders and with various miracles and gifts and of the Holy Spirit according to his will. For he has not put the world to come to which we speak in subjection to angels. And we'll stop there. So the, the big idea in that first paragraph, verse 1, all the way down to verse 4, is, well, there's kind of two. He kind of transitions to talking about how he's, Christ is so much greater than the angels. But the first idea is that superiority, the supremacy, the supreme revelation of Jesus Christ. That we saw that last time. That in the Old Testament, there's a hierarchy, that there was the hierarchy of Moses, that God had spoken through the prophets in various ways. That's what you see here, at various times and in various ways. Think about the various times that God had revealed himself to this prophet or that prophet. And he did it in all kinds of ways. Remember Joseph and his dreams? Remember Daniel and the interpretation of dreams? These dark sayings, these riddles, these enigmas. He's revealed himself in all of these various ways. But to Moses... He spoke face to face. He gave him greater clarity. That's why the Torah, the Pentateuch, those first five books, the law of Moses, had a superior place in Judaism than the rest of the books because God spoke to him face to face. And we have that whole drama of you have Moses being attacked by Aaron and his sister. And God even says, why were you not afraid to talk against Moses? I gave him a superior revelation. Submit to him. But here, as great as Moses was, and we're going to see this later on in the book of Hebrews, as great as Moses was, there was one greater than Moses. And that, of course, is Christ. He has spoken various times in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And it's this one, this Son, this Jesus Christ, who he has made heir of all things. Now, we'll talk about that a little bit further along, but it's Christ who's heir. And then he starts explaining, this one, this Christ, who is heir, who is greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah, greater than all of the law and the prophets. This one is the one by whom God made the worlds, the ages. He is the creator of all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus is your creator. This one. This one whom was incarnate. You think about the prologue of John. In the beginning was the Logos, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then going down to verse 14, this one, this Word, wrapped himself in human flesh, incarnated himself, and was born in the womb of Mary, living a perfect life. It's this one who created the world. Then we see this, which we skipped over last time, and I wanted to come back to this because I don't think it did it justice just to gloss over this point. In verse 3, look at verse 3. Right after it says that Christ created the worlds, creator of all things. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Now who's the his? This is describing Christ, who is the image and the brightness 
of God the Father. Here we have that wonderful, glorious doctrine of the Trinity. It's a glorious and wonderful doctrine, but I'm afraid that some people are so scared of this doctrine. They're so scared of dotting every I and crossing every T that they ignore it. They relegate it to a creed that they never look at. They never think about it. But that's not how the Bible speaks. The Bible just throws us at you all the time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Grace and truth be from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's all over the place. Because this is not a doctrine to be hidden away, to be afraid of. But this is the doctrine of our faith. That we serve no mere creature. No mere creature created the world. It was Christ, the Son of God. Every time we call him the Son of God, we are talking about the Trinity. Every time we talk about God in you, the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the Trinity. This is a doctrine about the Trinity, and it's assumed that we understand that we're talking about God the Son and his relationship to God the Father. And here we have a description of what role the Son has to the Father. We have a relationship here being described of how the Son relates to the Father. And there's two images that are given to us. These are biblical images. Look at your Bible, verse 3. You'll see the two images. Do you see it? The first is he's the brightness of his glory. The second, he's the express image of his person. Maybe your Bible says nature. Same idea. The nature of God, the person of God, his being, who he is. So let's take that second one first. That Christ is the express image of his person, of his nature, of his being. What does that mean? Well, where's the first place in the Bible do we get this idea of someone being in the image of God? Somebody got to know this one. We've been preaching through this book. Maybe in the morning. Maybe it's in chapter one of the book. Genesis, right? Isn't that where we first encounter this idea of something being in the image of something else? The very first time we have that idea is talking about man being in the image of God, right? Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us, there's that trinity again, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Very first time we have this idea is God creating man in his own image. Now there's a problem though. What does it mean that God created man in his own image? Because this is supposed to help us understand what it means that Christ is in the image of God. But the only difficulty is people are confused about what this text means, right? You, you get into the very first chapter, you got theologians debating left and right about what this means. But if you think about it, what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Just well, If I ask a five-year-old, what does it mean? He might say, I don't know. But if he's a little smarter, maybe ten, what does it mean he's in the image? What, do you, what does it mean? Well, I think that there's another text in the book of Genesis that gives us some insight of what it means that man is made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. We have this little, tiny little note in passing, but it says this. And Adam lived 130 years, and he begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. So Seth is in the image of Adam. Now Seth replaces who? 
Who does Seth replace? Come on, somebody heard this. Was anybody listening in the sermon? Who did Seth replace? Abel, right? Isn't that what she said? That I have gotten a man to replace Abel because Cain killed him. So now Seth is in the place of Abel, and Seth is in the image of Adam. But wait a second. Is Cain in the image of Adam? In some ways he is, but the Bible doesn't actually say that. It says specifically about Seth. And we know, the only thing we know about Seth is he has the moral character of Abel, and Abel is a righteous man. And so this tells us something about Adam, namely that Adam was a believer. Adam was a righteous man. Cain wasn't, so Cain's not in his image. He doesn't reflect him. Abel did, and then Seth reflects Adam. Hope I didn't confuse anybody. Here's the idea. It's very, very simple. Seth resembles Adam. Everybody see that? He's in his image. He's in his likeness. In fact, we use like this. We can say, the of yours resembles you. He's a spitting image. Isn't that colloquial English? He resembles him. I see him, or I see you in him. The way he talks, the way he walks, his attributes, his characteristics, his nose, his face. All of those things, they resemble one another. And so that's what it means. That's all it means. I'm sure it means more, but it doesn't mean less. It means that we, as humans, resemble God in some way. Okay? But how much do we resemble God? Only at a certain level. And this is where theologians talk about communical. And in theological terms, for in certain ways we resemble God, in certain ways we don't. We have power. I have power to pick this up. I have power to put it down. Right? I have power, but God has omnipotence. I have knowledge, but God has omniscience. You see that? This is communicable and incommunicable attributes. We resemble God. I'm living and breathing and thinking and walking and talking and moving. And God can do all of that and more. That's what it means that we are in the image of God. Back to our passage in Hebrews, though. Notice it doesn't just say he's the image of God. In New King James, which I'm reading out of, it says he's the express image of God. If you have an ESV, it probably says he's the imprint. Everybody see that? He's the imprint. What's an imprint? Something that if you seal, you smash it down, you take the seal off and it, you look at it and it says, oh, it's the same. It's the same idea. He is exactly the image of God. We only somewhat resemble God. But Jesus fully resembles him. In John 1.8, we read this. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father has declared him. No one has ever seen God. But there is one who has exegeted him. That's what the Greek says. Who has made him known. Who is that? The one in his bosom. Who's the one in his bosom? Jesus. That's a profound statement. I want you to think about that for a second. Nobody has ever seen God. Have you seen God? By the way, if somebody says they've seen God, show them this verse. You've not seen God. You say, wait a second. What about all the people in the Old Testament? Didn't they see God? Didn't Adam walk with God? Didn't Moses and the elders go up with God? Didn't Moses talk to God face to face, the very thing we talked about in the beginning of this sermon? Right? What's going on here? Well, okay. John 14, 9. You remember what the apostle said to Jesus? Show us the Father, and it will be, who knows the rest of that? Enough for us. Let me just stop here for a second. Is that how you feel? Show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Or 
Do you have career plans, vacation plans, all of this and all of that plans? And God is not enough for you. It was enough for the apostles. Show us the Father. And it's enough for us because God is our all in all. Because God is everything. That's what we're looking for. The blessed vision where we can see God and become like God, theosis. Anyways, so they say, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? You see what that? See what's going on? Show us the Father, Jesus. Have I not been with you so long? How can you say, show us the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the express image of the Father. You are not. Anyone who has seen you has not seen the Father. They've seen a mere image, a mere representation, some level of idea of who God is. But when we want to see the express image, we look to Jesus. In Colossians 1.15, it explicitly says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over every creature. It says elsewhere in the Bible that God dwells in inapproachable light. Nobody can approach this light. And yet God manifests himself to us through the Son. So that's what it means when it says here that he is the express image of his person. You want to know who God is? Look to Jesus. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the revelation of God. You come to God through Jesus. This reminds me of another text. The Bible says, no one can come to the Father except through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's talking there about salvation, but I'm saying that the Bible teaches even more profound truth. You can't come to the Father at all except through his Son. He is his revelation. He is his logos, his word, his wisdom, his expression, his image. You can only come to the Father by means of Christ. Now let's go back to verse 3. So we saw one description of Jesus. He is the image of his person. The next description is he's the brightness of his glory. The brightness of his glory. We talk about brightness and glory. What image comes to your mind? What's the image that comes to your mind? Talk about brightness and glory. What out in creation would you describe as bright and glorious? Do you know the piece of literature that C.S. Lewis said was one of the most beautiful pieces of literature ever written? Here's Psalm 119. It's a good text to memorize. Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 119, Psalm 23. A whole bunch out there, right? But Psalm 119 is on the list. It's a beautiful text. And in Psalm 119, so somebody go ahead and flip there. Go ahead, flip there. What does he describe when he wants to talk about creation? Psalm 19 is divided in two sections. He starts glorifying creation, God's natural revelation, and he starts glorifying God's special revelation. And in there, when he's talking about how glorious God is and how wonderful God is, because he has this glorious natural revelation, he points to something in creation. Does everybody see it? He wants to say, God, you're glorious. You made this amazing thing. What is it? Who sees it? Jacob, you see it? 19. 
19, sorry, 19. In Psalm 19, he points to something amazingly glorious that travels through the sky like a bridegroom. Hopefully you all see it. It's the sun. The sun is this glorious thing in the sky, so glorious that many pagan people often want to worship it, right? They often look to the greater light in the words of Genesis 1, the greater light, the sun, and the lesser light in the words of Genesis 1, the moon. And so in many false religions, they're worshiping the sun god and the moon god. It's because the sun is so glorious. When we think of something glorious in creation, we think of the sun. When we think of something bright, we think of the thing that brings brightness into the sky, which is the thing when we wake up every morning and the sun is rising, and then it goes from dark to bright. Okay? So when we go back here, what it says that he is the brightness of his glory, this is imagery coming from the image of the have the idea of the sun, and it emanates this glorious light. And this is an analogy, a picture, imperfect, nevertheless biblical, to be describing in a picturesque form, just like other pictures, by the way. He's the word, is a picture. He's the wisdom, he's a picture. He is the sun, he's a picture. These are all various pictures the Bible gives us to describe the relationship between the Father and the Son. And this picture is really just saying the same thing, the very next expression description is saying. He is the brightness of his glory. It's saying the same thing as he is the express image of his person. In other words, the way that we experience the sun is through the light, the brightness emanating from the sun. The sun is made known to you through its light. And just in the same way, God the Father is made known to us through his image. Back to what Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the express image of the person of God. He is the brightness of his glory. I just really want you to ponder about that statement and how only Jesus could possibly fulfill that role. Who else could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Who else could say, the brightness of God's glory is me? Nobody. No angel, no man, no nothing except Jesus Christ. This is the exalted Jesus that is being described here. Then it goes on, is that it is this one who's upholding all things by the word of his power. That is an amazing text, because oftentimes we think, who upholds the universe? And what person is it talking about in this text? Has it changed References and upholding all things by the word of his power. Who's upholding all things by the word of his power? The same person we've been talking about the entire time. It is Christ specifically who upholds your very existence. You are in the hand of God. In him, you live and move and have your being. Every moment, every second, he could vaporize you from existence. You are being held together by the hand of God. All of creation is being held together by the hand of God. Sometimes you see this picture, don't really recommend it, Nevertheless, I've seen it out there where you see the world in the hands of God. Not really a fan of pictures, but still the idea is very biblical. The world and all that's in it is in the hand of God, specifically in the hands of Christ. And it's this one who upholds all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. It's this one. It's this person, Jesus Christ, who is all of these things that by himself, 
He purged our sins. And now he's sitting at the right hand of God. And it says, Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now this is kind of interesting and a little difficult. What does it mean he has obtained a more excellent name than they? He's already, already had a more excellent name, right? He's always been the Word, the Son, all of these things. Well, that's of course true, but I think this is talking about his incarnation, that for a little while he was made lower than the angels, but then he was crowned with glory and honor. He came down as an unglorified man and then now has risen to glorification. And now, not just the divine logos who's always existed with the Father, but actually the incarnated man, the God-man, he himself, the one with flesh and blood, the one who died and rose again. It's that one, that person, that God-man. He is the one who's obtained a name higher than any other name. Now that might be a little complicated, but I want you to think about this. As a child, I used to think that Jesus, the divine Logos, came into fulfilled the rose from the dead, then shed off his body somewhere, back on just being completely no more humanity. You see that? He came temporarily, grabbed the body, did the mission, and then just dumped the body somewhere. But that's not what the Bible teaches. He didn't just temporarily grab a body and then dump it. No, he rose, received a glorified body, one that's imperishable, and is literally incarnate and remaining incarnate and in heaven forever. It is this one, this glorified God-man. He is the one who has received and obtained an inheritance more excellent than that of the angels. Look, look down to verse 5. So then he describes the greater reality of the Son than the angels. He says, For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? And he goes down this list. But he do a little bit of angelology. Angelology is the study of angels. Now, this is not the main point. Let's not get lost on that. The main point is about Christ, and we talked about that. The main point is Christ is so much better than they are. But while he's getting there, he has to describe a little bit about the angels to contrast with angels are so much less than Jesus. But in doing that, he wants to point out some things about angels, which tell us some interesting thing about angels. So that's what we're going to look at because last time we focused on Christ. And we've been focused on Christ. So, the first thing he says is, which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? The obvious answer is, none of them. Now, there is a slight problem. Is anybody, can anybody think of the slight problem as you're interacting with the text? As you're thinking, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? You think, wait a second. Anybody see that? Does anybody talk to the text like this? Talk to the text. Think about the text. Wrestle with the text. The text is one And for you to think about it. You say, wait a second. Is there anywhere in the Bible that angels are called sons of God? Genesis 6, debate, we could debate that, right? But certainly, in the book of Job, they're called the sons of God. In fact, we are called the sons of God, right? So what's going on here? Well, it seems that what's going on here is he's saying, we have to think about this. In some sense, we become a son of God when we believe, John 1, 12 and 13. He received him who believed his name. He gave the right to become sons of God. But if you go over into the book of Acts, he says that all of creation are his creatures and we are the offspring of God. So in some sense, everyone is a son of God. Okay? And then in some sense, Adam is especially a son of God. When you go into the genealogy of Luke, it says that Adam was a son of God. So there's various ways that various beings are sons of God. And the way that angels are sons of God are that they are a direct creation 
from God. In that sense, their creator is God, and therefore they are sons of God. But in this sense, this is a unique sense of one being the son of God. And this is referring to an inheritance, being one who's essentially uh, receiving honor and glory and receiving the throne. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. In this sense, they have not received this. They are direct creations of God. In that sense, they're sons of God, but they are not the sons of God in two senses. One, they're not the eternal son of God, as Jesus is, and nobody else is. And in a second sense, which is probably what this text is saying, but I won't die on that point, is that they're not the sons of God in the sense that they are not heirs with God. Now, if you're not sure if that text says that, turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, and you'll see this point explicitly made. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For he has not put the world to come to which we speak in subjection to angels. But then it says, he put these, the world which we are to speak in subjection to Jesus. But he also put the world to which we speak in subjection to us. Go read the book of Revelation. The whole book's about that. That Christ receives the kingdom and we will reign with him on the new heavens and the new earth. So th- what this tells us is that God will reign in the new heavens and new earth. Christ will reign in the new heavens and new earth. We in Christ will reign in the new heavens and new earth. And the angels will not reign. You see that? Angels are not reigning. Angels are servants. Glorified servants, wonderful servants, but angels will not reign. If you think that you and angels will reign together, it is not true. We will reign, God will reign, Christ will reign, angels, they will not reign. They are not sons of God in this way. Verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels of God worship him. Here we have that angels, of course, are created beings. There's a famous person who goes around on the internet, he recently passed away, who goes around calling angels divine beings. That's very inappropriate. Angels are not divine beings. There's only one divine being, and that divine being is God. And the three persons in that divine being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are only to worship the divine being. Angels are created beings. Okay? And angels, as created beings, worship the divine being, which is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We should never get that confused. And that's why he's bringing that out and saying angels are to worship specifically God the Son, but also God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We are not to worship angels. Can anyone think of a text in the Bible where somebody, even a godly man, tried to worship an angel? It actually happened twice in the same book, in the book of Revelation, where John sees an angel and tries to worship him, and he says, worship me, I am merely a servant. Worship God. In fact, this is exactly what Satan tried to do to Jesus. Satan tried to get Jesus to worship him. He said, get, get behind me, Satan. We should only worship the Lord our God. And yet angels are worshiping God. This is a good caveat as well while we're here. Sometimes we get really excited about angels because they're cool and they're interesting, they're fascinating. But let's never forget, we're not supposed to worship them. Our focus is to be on Jesus. But the Bible does reveal angels. And they are interesting, and they are fascinating, and they are real. But we aren't to focus on them. We're to focus on God and to worship him alone. All right, look at verse 7. And of the angels, he says, And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and administers a flame of fire. 
This is a little bit difficult text. There's a debate of whether he makes his angels spirits, or maybe your translation said who makes his angels winds. The Greek word is the same, spirit and wind. It can go either way. It's difficult. They're both true. Angels, of course, are spirits. They're spiritual beings. They don't have physical bodies. They can take on physical forms. We see that in the entire Old Testament. We see them constantly taking on physical forms. We have no details about that. We just know they can, at least sometimes, presumably, of course, by the, the will of God. They're also described elsewhere in the Bible as winds, and here they're described as ministers and a flame of fire. The descri- the descri- Many commentators, especially Jewish ones and so forth, uh, think that that refers to lightning, and so it's describing the angels in two different ways. They are winds, or spirits, and they are like lightning. And the point is this. These angels are very majestic, very powerful. They're as fast as winds, most likely. They're extremely quick, and they're extremely powerful like lightning. They just have unbelievable power. But even as glorious as these angels are, they're nothing but spirits. They're nothing but thunder. God is the one who sends thunder. God is the God of thunder. And so there is a massive difference between God and these angels. Nevertheless, these angels are powerful, they're amazing, and they're very interesting. And I, for one, look forward to meeting these angels and dwelling with them. In fact, even in the book of Hebrews, later on, it's going to describe heaven as so glorious where God resides, where the souls of men made perfect are there, and where innumerable angels are there. So we shouldn't go on either two extremes. One, we're so obsessed with angels, we forget about God. Or two, we're just totally uninterested in angels. Because sometimes we can cloak the other as some kind of pious reality. Oh, we're not interested in angels. We're only interested in God. Well, aren't you interested in the things that God is interested in? Interested in the things that God's word has revealed? Maybe you're cloaking your lack of interest in angels with really a lack of interest in the Holy Scriptures. Because we should be interested in everything that God's word has told us. Because all of this is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And let me just close here with some application of why some angelology is interesting. When you understand that angels are these powerful and, and glorious and wonderful beings, you also understand that there's a counterpart to angels, namely demons. Why is it important to know that? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but in powers and principalities. When you forget that there's a devil out there, and you forget that there's a whole host of evil out there. You often don't see it out there. But when you're looking for it, when you're not ignorant of the schemes of the enemy, then you start to see it. Then you start turning on your TV and start to see, I see him. I see the dragon. I see his angels. I see his lie. I see, and not just there, everywhere. You start to see it and smell it and be prepared to put on your armor of God to protect yourself from the fiery darts of the enemy. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that despite these angels, especially demons, being glorious and powerful and like thunder, fast as the wind, beings that we could never defeat, beings that could destroy us at any moment, we thank you, Lord, that you are so much more powerful than they are, that we have nothing to fear because you are with us, that you have put these evil beings to humiliation. You have triumphed over them in the cross that we don't have to deny their existence, we don't have to be afraid of their existence, that we have conquered through the blood of the Lamb, knowing that he who was in us is greater than he who was in the world. Help us, Lord, to love what your word teaches, to be fascinated, not by sports, merely the latest news, gossip, what's going on in various parts of the world and celebrities and all these other things, but let us be fascinated by your word, 
Let our, let our hearts beat to know you and all that you revealed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.